Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling. A brief apology from the outset if you hear any background noise. Unfortunately, where I live, Colorado Springs, just got a cold front. The wind's whipping around at 40 to 50 miles an hour, so if you hear some howling, it's the wind outside. But on today's episode, we'll feature an interview with Gene Dunford. Gene is Senior Managing Director at Umqua Bank. He'll talk a little bit about the relationship between bankers and retailers, what that looks like now in 2021 versus what it used to look like, and then also some upcoming changes or potential changes as a result of inventory changes retailers are having to make in terms of how they're financing that inventory. In news, we'll discuss sporting goods retail and our main story, Dollar General, releasing earnings and an update on their growth this week. And we'll look ahead to a China-based retail chain that recently increased their U.S. footprint by over 50%. A reminder that you can check us out on social media at Retail Podcast on both Instagram and Twitter. Additionally, if you enjoy the show, we do appreciate all those ratings that we get from our listeners, whether that be on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any other platform. If you enjoy us, those ratings help others to find us and check us out. So kind of the obligatory message there that you hear on every podcast, but we certainly do appreciate those ratings. So let's kick off today's show with Dollar General, one of the largest U.S. retailers in terms of unit count, and they released their earnings information this past Thursday. Now, this came against a backdrop of a very solid earnings week for retailers in general. The likes of Kroger and Ulta Beauty and Five Below all posting earnings beats. And Dollar General, too, beat analyst estimates of $2.02 per share, coming in with an adjusted earnings per share mark of $2.08 per share. Now, this was a smaller earnings beat than some of their retail brethren. And also, we should note an earnings per share decrease from 2020. Despite this, we wanted to provide a bit of an update on their strategic initiatives, including more than anything, their brick and mortar growth. That's what they spent the majority of their call talking about. To give you an idea as far as how much Dollar General has grown, at the end of the third quarter, Dollar General had 17,915 stores in 46 states. That number with openings since the quarter ended is now over 18,000. So they've grown by leaps and bounds, usually at least 1,000 stores per year over the past six to seven years. And we talk from time to time about real estate values being good indicators of maybe external perception of retail strength, particularly as they pertain to cap rates. Every retailer is going to tell you about the things that they're doing well, but realistically, sometimes when you look at how retailers are performing, in terms of how their real estate is selling on the secondary market, that will tell you more about perception of a retailer's success than anything else. For Dollar General, cap rates have fallen about 2% for their properties since the beginning of the pandemic, while interest rates have remained steady because cap rates typically indexed to interest rates. So what this indicates is widespread belief in Dollar General as one of the strongest retailers out there currently And this belief has really ratcheted up since the beginning of the pandemic. 
Now, all that being said, let's get to the numbers. Despite that earnings beat, Dollar General did see a similar trend regarding comp sales as other general merchandisers and grocers in that they were pretty much flat versus a tough comparison year last year. Dollar General saw a decrease of 0.6% in terms of comp sales. And ostensibly here, given what we talked about just in the recent past with Family Dollar, Family Dollar maybe clawed back a bit of market share on Dollar General this past quarter. Family Dollar actually saw a comp increase on their end. Now, the two-year stack comps for Dollar General still up 11.6%. That's reasonably in line with most general merchandise retailers out there. Kind of towards the lower end, it's still ahead of Family Dollar's two-year stack numbers, however, which came in at 9.1% increases. Now, for Dollar General, traffic was down slightly. Basket size up slightly, which is notable because basket size was up in a big way in 2020. So they continue to grow that basket size. Overall net sales increased for them 3.9% as a result of their continued explosive store count growth, even though those comps were negative. And Dollar General remains fairly profitable. Operating profit came in at 7.8% of net sales. Now, in Fairness, this number was down sequentially from their 9.8% mark in the second quarter, and we're seeing a lot of retailers, due to inflation or maybe other things, maybe see that operating profit tail back. Now, their margin, they said on the call, was eroded by a few key factors, and I've kind of divided them into common ones, not-so-common ones, and really quite unique ones to Dollar General. Now, the common factors that were eroding Dollar General's margin during this last quarter were increased labor costs and increased freight costs. That's something we've heard just about every retailer say. The not-so-common issues for Dollar General happens to come from increased sales numbers when it comes to consumables. Consumables carry, of course, a tighter margin than their apparel and seasonal categories, both of which, by the way, saw a decline during the quarter. Their store occupancy costs also rose on average, and again, that's to be expected as they continue to lease new construction. They gradually move out of some of their legacy locations, which carried very much lower rents, in some cases rents that were a third as much as their newer locations. And they did, by the way, when we're talking about consumables, grow market share in frozen and refrigerated based on syndicated data. And again, If you're new to the podcast, Dollar General has had this Dollar General Fresh platform that they've been rolling out. They finished the rollout in the second quarter of this year, and the increase in frozen and refrigerated goods sales really credited to that Dollar General Fresh initiative. It's now serving all stores. They have 12 distribution centers fully outfitted to serve that Dollar General Fresh or DG Fresh initiative. However, for Dollar General, despite all this strength in consumables that eroded their margin somewhat, overall consumable market share did shrink year over year based on that same syndicated data. So just something to keep in mind. Now, the very unique reason as to why Dollar General saw a decrease in margin this quarter was actually an increase in costs of damaged inventory. That's not something we've heard much about of late. In fact, they actually saw a decrease in internal shrink, so different than damaged inventory. So theft, not as big of a problem for Dollar General. And this flies against what many retailers have noted in the recent past. Walgreens, Kroger, Home Depot, 
and others have talked about a rise in shrink. Dollar General hasn't really seen that. However, they have had their merchandise get damaged in one way or another during the freight process. Now, this should also help to maybe allay the concern that some analysts had surrounding the self-checkout model installed in certain Dollar General stores. Some were a little bit worried that this would lead to greater shrink as well. At least so far, we see that that's not the case. Dollar General doing a great job controlling that in-store shrink. And I'm sure part of that has to do with not only controlling retail theft, but also greater turnover in those consumable goods. Now, regarding their go-forward initiatives, CEO Todd Bassos announced their major projects for the next few years on the call, including projects related to their pop-shelf stores. We'll talk about that in just a moment, but first, regarding that real estate growth, they've planned nearly 3,000 total real estate projects for this next year. The majority of these are renovations, but they are seeking over 1,000, 1,110 stores, in fact, as well. So that had put their store count over 19,000 company-wide, and this kind of continues their mix that we're seeing in the present with new openings versus renovations. This past quarter, for example, they opened 268 new stores, remodeled 486 existing stores, and many of these renovations include installation of new cooler doors to support that DG Fresh initiative. 52,000 cooler doors have already been added to their store base through the end of the third quarter this year. They expect over 65,000 to be installed by the end of this fiscal year. Back to those new stores, the 1,110 new stores we speak of, those are inclusive of new pop shelf stores as they plan to triple the number of those stores during the upcoming year. And pop shelf, for those that are unaware, is Dollar General's fledgling home decor and arts and crafts concept, at least that's what they call it. But when you go to one, it's kind of a mashup between maybe a Michaels or Hobby Lobby, Home Goods, a Party City, and then a Dollar General with some HBA and household items. Moreover, most items are $5 or less, so think of it kind of maybe like a five below for adults a little bit without as much of the technology that five below offers in their stores. As far as Pop Shelf is concerned, they do have 30 stores. Currently, most of them centered around the Dollar General wheelhouse there in Tennessee, around their headquarters. They also announced a plan for 1,000 new Pop Shelf locations by the end of the 2025 fiscal year. Now, these are apparently freestanding stores, not the Dollar General Market and Pop Shelf combo stores that they opened two of earlier this year as kind of a test. Now, regarding Pop Shelf, their previous plans had run just through the end of this year. They said that they were planning on opening 50 of these Pop Shelf-only locations and 25 combo stores by the end of 2021. So tripling this number for those Pop Shelf stores and gunning for four figures in Pop Shelf locations by the end of 2025 tells us that this concept is indeed working for Dollar General and it gives them something to really kind of pour future resources into. Additionally, they announced their plans to open up to $10 General stores south of the border in Mexico by the end of 2022. This would be the first international expansion for the company. In fact, the first expansion outside of the continental United States. They still don't have stores in Alaska or Hawaii, 
Already this fall, they announced construction of their first Idaho location. And if you haven't been to the inland northwest in the United States, it's relatively sparse when it comes to these type of stores in general. Dollar General, Family Dollar locations, don't really see a whole lot of those in rural areas in the likes of Montana or western Washington or in Idaho. So still some white space there in the United States for Dollar General to cover. But overall, you get the sense, especially based on comments on the call, based on the analyst Q&A, that their focus has begun to shift ever so slightly from kind of the mainline Dollar General store expansion to that expansion in Mexico and expanding Pop Shelf. And you know, you could certainly surmise that this would happen eventually as they begin to saturate all of these potential Dollar General markets. Again, looking for over 19,000 stores by the end of 2022. I think over 20,000 by the end of 2023 is probably among their internal goals. So after a while, you're just going to run out of spots to put Dollar General locations. So having Pop Shelf and expanding south of the border, two things that I think Dollar General probably begin to focus increasingly on during the course of this decade. During the call itself, it was kind of funny. You can't help but feel that the CEO, again, Todd Vassos, was taking veiled shots at Dollar Tree there. And this wasn't in regards to any one of their initiatives, but I think it does kind of provide some color as far as where Dollar General is at, as far as their pricing model is concerned. Within two minutes of the start of the call, he dropped this quote, and I'm going to quote this again. Because so many families depend on us for everyday essentials at the right price, we believe products at the $1 price point are important for our customers, and they will continue to have a significant presence in our assortment. He went on after that quote to say that 20% of their overall SKU count is $1 or less, and they actually want to grow their skew count of $1 or less products in many markets. You can see that they're smelling blood in the water a little bit with those Dollar Tree price increases we've talked about in recent episodes. And finally, Dollar General did reiterate their goal of continuing to roll out increased healthcare SKUs in the U.S. Around 400 additional health items were rolled out to nearly 800 stores year to date. They expect this number to be over 1,000. By years and they want to continue this rollout and in those stores where they've rolled these additional health items out they'd like to backfill at some point in time in the future with health services in their more rural locations which is after all something that may be needed with those planned cvs closures coming down the pike so lots going on at dollar general but main takeaways from the call they're looking to expand pop shelf they're keeping their brick and mortar expansion plans pretty well untouched they're expanding south of the border. DG Fresh is now in all of their stores and producing gains in consumables, particularly refrigerated and frozen, not only year over year, but also market share wise. And for Family Dollar, they're seeking more products with under a dollar price point and more healthcare products in their stores. So basically, it's a tale of expansion for Dollar General, and we likely shouldn't expect any. Different Now, very quickly in this news segment, before we talk to Gene Dunford, Hibbit released earnings for their third quarter. We wanted to take a second to talk a little bit about the sports retail industry. This came off the heels of Dick's stellar earnings call a few weeks ago. Comps were up 12.2% there. Foot Locker, too, released earnings a few weeks ago. 
Comps were up a bit over 3% at Foot Locker. Similar to Dix, Hibbit showed comp gains over a strong Q3 of 2020. Comps for Hibbit were up 13%. Two-year stacks now coming in at an increase of 37.4%. This quarter, this included brick-and-mortar gains of 11.6%, so their brick-and-mortar stores doing very well. E-commerce also doing really well for Hibbit. That sales category of 22.3%. Ecom now reflective of 14% of Hibbit's overall sales. They've seen gains, especially in footwear there. On the bottom line, they slightly beat on analyst expectations. Earnings per share of $1.68 versus $1.56 expected. Still, that wasn't necessarily enough to appease Wall Street. Shares fell around 4.3% during trading on Friday, December 3rd. After their earnings call, Hibbit stock, by the way, has been hugely volatile when you look at the last three months up and down quite a bit. But the big question, as it was for Dix on their call, was inventory position. And to that end, CEO Mike Longo actually said they've improved their inventory position sequentially and as a result are continually well positioned for each holiday week that is upcoming. And that's the reason why we're talking about it here. Otherwise, the call, just another really successful earnings call from the sporting goods retail category. But inventory per store for Hibbit now sits at over $238,000. That number was just over $196,000 a year ago and just over $200,000 at the beginning of the third quarter. So they managed to increase their inventory per store around 19% during the third quarter alone. Historically, and the reason this is important is because Hibbit has attempted to keep limited inventory on hand at stores. Basically, if you go to a Hibbit stockroom, it's limited to shoes and different sizes of the shoes that they carry. But most all gear and clothing used to go straight to the shelves. But now they've tried to pivot this a little bit. They've outfitted individual stores with more merchandise now versus the past. And this is due in part certainly to those increased sales that increased demand but also in part due to that wariness over supply chain issues for others. In fact, they said that they're in stocks and that increased level of in stocks during the third quarter that was a major differentiator for them. That helped to drive market share gains even in a quarter where you didn't see any stimulus payments like what you saw late in 2020 or early in 2021. As a result of this strong position, they improved their guidance for the fourth quarter to comp gains of high single digits from mid single digits. They noted continued momentum in e-commerce and buy online pickup in store to this point in the quarter. And they expect nothing different for the latter half of the fourth quarter. By the way, they opened six net new stores for the third quarter. They opened seven and closed one. So things continue to look good for Hibbit, continue to look good for the likes of Dix and for these companies, again, it's about keeping in stock those high-demand items, especially in footwear and athleisure wear. If they can do that, could be shaping up to be a positive 2022 for those retailers as well. All right, that'll do it for our news segment this week. Coming up, we'll discuss banking and retail with Gene Dunford, a senior managing director at Umqua Bank. He'll talk again about the relationship between banks retailers, how that's changed recently, and how retailers may have to rethink how they're funding their inventory.
you're someone that oversees product creation, product management, innovation, startups, etc., you know how hard it is to be sure your next big idea will be a hit. In fact, 85% of new products fail, and a huge reason for all that failure is that it's just too hard to validate either a product fit with a consumer or maybe where it fits in the marketplace. Old style market research is too slow, far too complicated, and certainly too expensive for fast moving individuals or teams trying to build something great. But what if you could test out your product ideas with target consumers wherever you want, whenever you want, before you put all the time and money into development? That's what startups and Fortune 500 companies alike do with Feedback Loop. You can get quality feedback from the target customers early and often. Feedback Loop is the test before you invest product research platform. It's got expert templates for concept testing, user discovery, prioritizing features on your roadmap, and a whole lot more. And best of all, you can create your own test in minutes and get back quality insights from your target consumers in just hours. Right now, if you go to go.feedbackloop.com retail, you'll get three full tests for free. Once again, that's go.feedbackloop.com retail. If you want your next product or feature to be a hit, test before you invest, build based on data, not opinion, and launch with confidence with Feedback Loop. Once again, three full tests for free. If you visit go.feedbackloop.com slash retail, that link, that's in our show notes. Retail's consistently changing landscape brings about change for not only retailers and customers, but also the organizations and businesses that support those retailers. And recently, as we've discussed ad nauseum, many of those changes have centered around supply chain, logistics, and various digital solutions. But what about those that are responsible for providing perhaps the most critical support to retailers of all? We're talking about financial institutions here. And joining us to discuss various aspects of changes in retail and how these changes have in turn affected the relationship between financial institutions and retailers is Gene Dunford. Gene will also give us some tips he's got for retailers going forward as well. Gene is the Senior Managing Director or a Senior Managing Director at Umqua Bank. Thank you so much for joining us, Gene. Hey, thank you so much. Appreciate it, Trent. First, I was wondering if you could give us an idea of what you and what Umqua Bank does on the day-to-day so that our listeners know a bit of the perspective that you bring here. Yeah, good question. And first of all, thank you for saying it correctly. It is Umqua Bank, so I will make sure that's clear. It sometimes gets mistaken, but Umqua Bank is a $30 billion asset bank located in Portland, Oregon, and we have about 200 locations throughout the Western United States. I happen to manage the Los Angeles Corporate Banking Group, which is downtown Los Angeles and our Glendale offices. And so we actually see an awful lot. You spoke a little moment ago about the supply chain issues. So obviously that's near and dear to us from my site, my view right now today, it's a little hazy, but generally I can see out to the ocean and can see all those ships sitting out there waiting to come in and provide the retailers with those Christmas goodies that they're hoping to be able to sell. So we are heavily involved, particularly here in Los Angeles with many of the companies that do the importing and exporting, particularly importing from really all around the world, given the fact that you have those two ports sitting out there, the port of Los Angeles and the port of Long Beach, which together 
do make up the largest ports in the United States and, and one of the top 10 in the world combined. So we actually have a good view into that. And in particular, on my side, we're dealing with companies you know, 50 million to really north of that, maybe up to even 500 million or, or, or larger in size. But both sides, the B2B and becoming more increasingly the B2C businesses. So that's kind of a basic idea of what we do. We provide lending, we provide cash management services, we really provide everything they need to operate from a financial standpoint, and we're true relationship bankers. You've got a unique perspective because not only in terms of location, as you mentioned, you can look out and see the ships that are waiting to pull into harbor with some of these logistics issues that we've discussed, but also you deal with both B2C and B2B. Every aspect of the business, especially from the financial perspective, and I just wanted to start with this because you've got this perspective here, maybe over the last 18 months or so, what are some of the biggest challenges? What are some of the biggest opportunities you see on the retail front or even on the supplier front? You know, I think that you almost have to even go back further than 18 months, right? I mean, this has really been coming about really for a few decades and so forth. It's something I like to call the Amazon nation of retail and of commerce in general, that for some time now, we've seen this small book dealer selling books on the internet really turn into a powerhouse, the powerhouse in retailing in the world. And so it's been certainly a big change of the last little bit. And we slowly saw this coming on, right? But I don't think any of us really expected to see it happen as quickly. We've been focusing on really brick and mortar and so forth. And we've seen that change. Consumer electronics, of course, changed a few years back. And and we slowly saw Amazon become more and more powerful. And and companies, really forward-leaning companies like Nordstrom and some of these other retailers, Target, certainly a Walmart, who is, is a powerhouse in it as well, started using e-commerce as their platform to bring things about. So they're really kind of into that whole omni-channel world and so forth. Amazon, of course, starts moving more into the brick and mortar and so forth. So we've seen that coming about. And probably 18 months ago, two years ago, if you and I had been talking at that point, Trent, we'd probably say, yeah, probably in the next five or 10 years, this will really become the way business is done. But COVID hits. And next thing we know, that's been a sea change. And that's been fast forwarded probably three to five years or so. And suddenly e-commerce is the way that business is being done. And companies are having to focus more and more on that whole, those who are brick and mortar, omni-channel way of doing business. And those who are successful at it are going to do fantastic. Those who are not successful at it are going to suffer. And so we've really seen a lot of our clients, as this has happened, really change. And this is Amazonization of, like I say, my word has taken place. We've really started to see our companies have to lean more and more on finance to get things accomplished. You got a couple of things happening there, right? And a couple of questions they have to kind of ask themselves. How do I finance my supply chain or trade cycle? You know, what is that supply chain and trade cycle? I mean, that's kind of been questioned. A lot of people question that lately, right? What's the most cost-effective way that I can work with my suppliers, whether that's B2C or B2B. How do I pay those suppliers? How do I get paid? How do I see that as it becomes increasingly more important for a company to hold inventory, which is a real change from the way things were being done before, it's much more difficult to finance that inventory. How do I get that inventory financed? And what do I have to do with my bank to be able to do that? And so I think that 
these are all areas that are important to banking that we are solutions that we as banks offer. And that's where I think it's become more and more important that companies are talking to their banks and trying to figure out these very important questions. I think that's a great spot to maybe back up a little bit because there might be people listening out there who perhaps aren't familiar with the relationship retailers have with their banks, with their financial institutions. And as I mentioned, these are very, very crucial partnerships in the world of retail. On what level are you having this conversation with retailers, not only over the last 18 months, not only, as you mentioned, with this acceleration that we've seen getting more digital solutions, more e-commerce solutions out there, and the supply chain issues that we've talked about. What's that conversation like, and what's that partnership look like for the back end for some that may not be aware of just how closely the two are intertwined? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the biggest questions is, how am I going to finance? Or, you know, as things start to change, and like I say, I think that probably trend, we see it from a little bit different, particularly on my level. I'm dealing more with maybe that next level, that B2B, but as that B2B turns into a B2C, which is becoming increasingly more important, I think one of the main questions that comes up is, you know, we were used to for years and years just paying with cash, right? And people walking in and how do I pay for my products? As this has become more and more driven to the internet or driven to the cyber world, and now we start hearing things like the metaverse and so forth, these kind of words come up, that it's become increasingly, I think, important two aspects. One is how do I finance that inventory? How do I get that in? How do I finance it? And secondly, how do I get paid for it and how do I get paid quickly for it? And I think that those are both very important questions that companies are asking themselves more and more, particularly on that, how do I get paid, Sand, and how do I pay my suppliers? If I'm buying a product, if I say I am a retailer and I'm actually buying, shipping products in from China, and I've had these products produced over in China or Indonesia or Vietnam for years and years, I've developed those relationships, but now it's becoming more important that I pivot and start to bring in that inventory in a more timely manner, quicker, and turn it into cash quicker. How do I do that? And what does my website look like to be able to make that happen? Let me use, for example, I, when COVID hit, I wear a suit every day. Suddenly, I don't have to wear a suit every day, and I can wear jeans and things such as that. And so I have my favorite jeans company that I like to buy, and I go to my local store that I buy those at, and that local store happened to be shut. And so I'm like, hmm, well, I wonder what it is. I happen to know that this company is located just a few miles from here in Southgate, California, just south of Los Angeles. And so I think, well, I wonder if they have an online presence. I got online, and I took a look at it, and sure enough, my previous retailer that I had would have just had, first of all, would have just had a small number of choices for me to choose from, obviously the size, but now I suddenly have that entire company's product at my hands that I'm able to order. And so in doing so, I then choose those that I want and I go to check out and I say, oh my gosh, they also have several ways that I can check out. I don't have to go because something that drives me nuts, and maybe a lot of people, I hate having to go to several screens and enter in all my information and my credit card and shipping and all that. But they had several different solutions, whether that's PayPal or Venmo or Apple Pay or, or just use your credit card. But there were different payment solutions that I could choose to do it and make it an easy way and an easy experience for me to check out. I checked out within a couple of days. I had my jeans and I was ready to move forward having that bit, because if I had gone there and I almost guarantee if I, knowing myself, 
if it had been difficult for me to get my payment information into that company, I probably would have said, eh, forget about it. So that's one aspect of it. But then the other aspect of it is now they're selling this product. And I know they have retail locations. I've seen them brick and mortar locations at several malls around here. But now instead of shipping all this to Nordstrom or to Macy or to name your retailer that they would have shipped it to and them creating an, an accounts receivable that I was able to finance, they now have to carry that inventory. And that inventory is much more difficult to finance. So that's a conversation with the bank that here's a solution. Here's where things have changed. There's been a sea change. How do I finance this inventory? What's the most cost-effective way for me to do that? What way can I do it that the bank would be comfortable lending against that? And then the banker providing those solutions. So from both those standpoints, how do I finance this inventory that I have? And secondly, and equally more important, how do I get paid from it once I do? Because people aren't necessarily walking into my store anymore and swiping a card or giving me dollar bills. To answer your question, I think that those are the things that retailers, I think that any retailer would probably say, yeah, that's exactly my concern right now. That on top of the fact that there are ships sitting out there in the ocean that I'm waiting for to unload. But I think that those ships will eventually unload, right? That supply chain will eventually loosen up and that'll all happen. These other issues that are really the changes that have come about, those are long-term issues that a retailer and a wholesaler is going to have to talk to their bank about and understand how do they deal with that. Well, let's hone in on the how to get paid for what you're selling aspect of things, because as you mentioned earlier, we've seen three to five years worth of acceleration towards e-commerce as a sales mechanism within the span of a very few months because right. of COVID and because of some of the other macro factors there. So what are some options there as far as retailers making sure that their accounts receivable are in effect receivable, that that money does make its way to them? And then also, what are some options that banks can give them or what's that role that that bank will play in that process? Well, I think that first of all, it's having a robust banking system, right? I mean, wherever you're going to bank, and I think that that's something you really have to take a look at. There are many great community banks that are able to help companies out. Do they offer really the solutions that they need to be able to collect various forms of payment, whether that's swiping a card or entering a card on a computer? How do they, if they're dealing a lot with PayPal and so forth, do their banking systems interface with these other systems easily that they're able to get paid quickly, that they don't sit kind of in never, never land for a while to be able to do it. So that is, I think, really sitting down with your treasury management, your banking officer or, or whoever you're dealing with at the bank and really kind of their treasury management specialist and understanding what solutions. First of all, what is it I want to do? What is it I want my commerce to look like? You know, if at the end of the day, I really just am collecting dollar bills and so forth, then that's going to look a lot different than it's going to look if I am trying to swipe a card. And is it just simply, I just want to be able to swipe a credit card and I, that's really the only way I want to do it? Or do I want to be able to interact with many other channels like a Venmo, like a Apple Pay, like a PayPal? And if I'm going to do those sorts of things, do I have a robust enough system that I am able to collect those quickly. And so I think that those are really the solutions that the banks can and offer. If I'm using Square or I'm using, you know, however it is I am capturing that data and capturing those cells, 
does my system meet the needs that I have? And perhaps I need to boost up my cash management products now. And is that going to cost, how much is that going to cost me? And does that really translate into quicker dollars coming into my account? And the quicker those come in, it actually pays for itself to pay the extra money to get a more robust treasury management system. So all that being said, I'm curious because, again, you're the one that's oftentimes having this dialogue with companies that are out there. What is maybe some white space, some area of opportunity that you see for retailers out there that perhaps retailers or even suppliers aren't taking advantage of or maybe would be well served to kind of look at implementing in the future? I really think that it's looking at that omni-channel you know, what I'm going to have at my brick and mortar, if I'm a brick and mortar retailer, what I'm going to have there, how I capture that data, how I capture that information is going to look far different than it's going to look on the internet or however I'm going to sell that way, or whether it's through Amazon or however I'm going to sell those particular products, eBay or whatever I choose where I'm going to sell from. It's going to look very different. So I think that the first thing is a company needs to ask themselves, what is it I want to be? Do I see myself just kind of being an old school, tried and true retailer? And if that's the case, then great. And there are a lot of solutions and there are a lot of things that are a lot easier now, different programs where people can swipe, use their phones and so forth. I think we've all seen those. We're able to just have a phone. I mean, you drive through like a Chick-fil-A. I drove through there last night with my wife. And of course, we just tap our phone against their receiver and they're able to use Apple Pay to pay for it. I mean, those are all things that I think that a company needs to really, first and foremost, think about what it is they want to be. And after doing that, do I have the best way to collect those dollars? And I would argue at this point, you need to be able to use credit card and so forth. And if I'm online, I need to really think about what the experience is my client is having when they go online and try to pay. Do I have simple solutions that make it easy for them to move forward? As simple as, because let's face it, Amazon is going to do a huge percentage of Christmas sales this year or holiday sales this year are going to be done through Amazon. And why is it they've done so well? It's because the experience is so great, right? From the fulfillment to the ordering to the choices and so forth. And the pain is really phenomenal. And so if I'm going to compete against them, then I need to make sure that my online presence looks the same. And my client's ability to pay is every bit as easy as it is for an Amazon or for any of these other big retailers that I'm competing against. So I want to close on this because, again, this is a subject that you talk about, you deal with on a day-to-day basis. What's something maybe coming over the horizon that you're aware of, maybe other people in the industry are aware of that the layperson might not see coming? What's the, I don't want to say next big thing, and I know sometimes prognosticating (laughs) the future is a fool's errand, but what are some things on the horizon in regard to retail banks and their relationship that we should be aware of? You know, I think that banking's banking. It's been the same for many, many years. And, you know, I think that probably the biggest question is, is who is my relationship manager? Are they meeting the needs? I do? Can they discuss with me my trade cycle? Can they discuss with me issues of importing and exporting, if that's what I'm involved with? Can they discuss with me e-commerce and those sorts of things? I think it's really first and foremost, 
does my relationship manager or does my bank understand what's coming down the pike? Are things going to change greatly in banking? Probably not a huge amount. I think that we're going to, banks are going to have to reassess what our credit looks like and how we finance inventory and how we finance the trade cycle and things such as that. I think that those are going to be questions that bankers are going to struggle with for some time, or I don't know if struggle is the right word, but they're going to, there's opportunities that we're going to have to come up with solutions for. But I think that the thing that really is coming, so that would be the one thing I think, can my banker talk the talk to me about what I'm facing and start to come up with those solutions for me? I think that equally important is what is going on in the just the world around us in general. Just this last couple of weeks, we learned, a, we've all learned a new word, right? The metaverse. Well, I mean, it's kind of been around for a while, but it, all of a sudden it's come to the forefront. What does that metaverse look like? And does my bank have the ability, am I prepared for what's going to happen in the future? And does my bank have the solutions and can they talk about it with me now? And can we start to develop solutions that puts me in a place where I'm able to compete with anyone out there in the metaverse or whatever verse comes next? And so I think that those are probably the most important things that a company should be looking at as far as their banking goes. As always with any industry with any sector, it seems like it all comes back to communication and understanding, which I, I think is kind of what we've underscored during this conversation. Well, Gene, thank you so much for taking the time and discussing this communication between banks and retailers and the retail landscape with us today. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much, Trent. I really do appreciate the opportunity. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. Well, we thank Gene for joining us. And as we wrap up our show today, we want to talk about a retailer that, again, based in China, but has recently opened six new stores in the United States and sounds kind of familiar to the Lidl story from a few years ago. Well, this story is regarding Miniso, again, a huge retailer in China, thousands of locations there. They're aiming to expand in the United States. To this point, most of the Miniso stores are located in California. In fact, if you go to their website, they have 10 total stores listed in the U.S., Nine of those 10 are in California, the other in Florida, but they recently announced six new stores opening up in Delaware, Virginia, New Jersey, New York, and now Texas also added to the market. So they're kind of focusing on the East Coast a little bit. If you're not familiar with Miniso, it's basically a retailer where most of the products are under a $10 price point. It's kind of like, you know, and we mentioned Five Below earlier in this podcast, but kind of like an adult version of a Five Below. There's still some kid items mixed in there, of course, but the general focus, at least the company says, is on quality. You look at their square footage, usually five to 10,000 square feet in terms of their stores. Some are more, some are less. Typically, these stores are in your traditional shopping malls, although some of them are in the outdoor centers and the like in the United States. Now, this is why I'm looking ahead because it's been difficult to get information on Miniso overall. 
They first entered the U.S. market in 2017, and they've said several times that they expect by the end of 2022 to have 53 stores across the United States, which would be a very quick expansion. Again, only 10 U.S. stores currently listed on their website. When you go to their website, they do have a bit of an online presence, but it's kind of scattered around. It's not all that easy to navigate. It takes a while to bring some of the products up and the like. So it seems pretty apparent that they're really not focused all that much on their e-commerce offerings, at least in the United States. They're focused on opening up in various different markets with that lower price point, maybe taking advantage of some of the cheaper mall rents that they might have at hand at least over the next few quarters before those mall operators begin to get that occupancy back up. But again, this is a company that seems to want to expand via franchising. And I'm looking ahead at this because not always is it a circumstance where retailers expand into the U.S. and explode as expected. You look back at, of course, the Lidl stories from a few years ago, and you saw false starts there. You saw them lease real estate that they didn't end up using, which created kind of a weird logjam for landlords, in some cases, who were building out these concepts for that particular store. Lidl overall has gained a little bit of a following here in the U.S., but it hasn't been the explosion. It hasn't been the erosion of market share that so many predicted here. And I really want to see what happens with Mini. So if this is just kind of a, a niche retailer that'll stay along the coast, or if this is something that, like Five Below, sees white space in the United States and really sees kind of an explosion throughout the U.S., I have a tendency to believe it's the former, but I've been proven wrong before, especially when you have a competitor in the likes of Five Below that knows the U.S. market well. And honestly, when you look at Miniso, a lot of their offerings are pretty similar to Pop Shelf, and not many retailers know the U.S. market as well as Dollar General. So just something to keep an eye on. Again, those six stores opening up took place during Black Friday, it's a difficult time to open a store, certainly, but we'll see if those 53 stores really open up at the end of the year or by year's end for many. So well, that'll do it for our episode here this week. A big thanks to Gene Dunford for joining us. And of course, thanks to Feedback Loop for helping to bring you this week's podcast. Coming up next week, we'll be joined by Shannon Calhoun, Shannon is the Vice President of Global Industry Strategy for Retail and CPG with TalkDesk, and she's going to be discussing the overall forecast and prognostication for returns in the first quarter of 2022, and also some things retailers can do to smooth out the returns process for customers. Talk a little bit also about ensuring telephone assistance platforms for retailers as well. So a little bit of a different approach, if you will, to covering the influx of returns we're likely to see in the first quarter of 2022. Big thanks to all of you out there for listening this week. And until next week, I'm Trent for Leighton saying so long for now. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. 
Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.